Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, this is Rebecca Buchanan, host of New Books Network, New Books in Popular Culture. And today I'm here with Evan Rapport, who is the author of Damaged, Musicality and Race in Early American Punk. Evan, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. I'm hoping you can start by telling us a bit about how you came, how this book came about. So how you got interested in writing about the sort of early American history um, and producing this book. Um, well, a lot of things came together in the writing of this book. I've been very interested in, you know, punk as a fan for a very long time. Um, even going back to my elementary school days, uh, I was in elementary school when Combat Rock came out, and I loved that album. Um, so, and this is something I've been thinking about for a long time, and but never really saw, I guess, the things I heard in punk and rock music in general really reflected in the books that I would read about punk. So it was like a book that I thought. I wanted to read, but that didn't exist. Um, and then when I was in graduate school, I took a couple of seminars that really changed my thinking about music in some interesting ways. I took a class on musical exchanges of African-Americans and Euro-Americans with uh, Stephen Blum, who ended up being my dissertation advisor, and a class on um, American music scholarship with Eli Hasama who is also a reader on my dissertation. And I started working on some of the stuff that actually ended up in the book in those seminars, thinking about race and how like musical style reflected um, the, the kinds of changes in racial formations that were going on in the 60s and 70s. And um, yeah, after I finished my first book, which was on a uh, a very different topic, but still an American music topic on um, uh, immigrants, Jewish immigrants from Central Asia that live in Queens. I was looking for the next project, and I had um, I had published an article on the relationship of punk to the blues, and then it just seemed like this was a larger project that ended up being one of the chapters, and it just. The more I got into this topic, the more interesting it got, the more my mind changed about things I had thought in the past, the more I was learning. That's what I really love about doing research, doing scholarship. And I thought, you know, this, the book sort of like emerged in my mind as like a fully formed larger, larger project. So that's, that's kind of the way it went. So before we really get into, um, the the text uh, and this is sort of in your intro you talk about this but i'm wondering if you can ground us in your understanding of where you see sort of punk i don't want to say originating right but but sort of how you sort of ground or um sort of 
con the context you put punk into, like where it sort of comes from and derives from. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, one of the main goals of the book is to see punk in the sort of broadest possible terms and also as a, a dimension of American music more generally, you know, as a kind of rock music, as a kind of popular music, as a kind of American music. So seeing it not as this thing that's its own unique, you know, world that, that, that came from nowhere, but as something that was really, you know, of its time, that was a sort of, um, maybe more intense manifestation of things that were going on, but still a, a part of, of what was going on. So, um, and I, I think there's so much, I guess this, this goes to what I was saying about my, how the book emerged. You know, I'm also a musician as well as a, a ethnomusicologist, a musicologist, and I played in a lot of rock bands, a lot of punk bands, um, well, not a lot, but some. And, uh, you know, the things I heard in the music, the relationship I had to it, the conversations I had with other musicians always seemed to have this kind of, um, you know, very open-ended, eclectic kind of, um, you know, uh, point of view. There was always a lot of interest in stretching the music in interesting ways. Like it was a very sort of music-centered kind of um, experience for me. And I always was finding connections with other styles of music. And, you know, the, the people I knew were very um, interested in, in music, broadly speaking, interested in history, interested in American music. I didn't see this kind of point of view that you sometimes see, oh, this music came from nowhere. It's a historical, people aren't interested in anything else. You know, we were always um, talking about you know, jazz or, or classic rock or classical music or, or whatever it was. We weren't just like in this sort of self-isolated world. And I also, I guess the other thing is to, to really situate it as um, a, a dimension of American music, meaning that so much of the early punk and the things that fed into punk were really coming from this American experience. <clears throat> and that's that's a hard story to tell because the narrative of punk starting in the UK in the late 70s or mid to late 70s is such a strong narrative that it's, um, that to draw a sort of continuous line between say the late sixties or the mid sixties to the late seventies and early eighties. That's, um, that's focused on lived experience in the United States is it's a hard, it's a hard sell. So that was sort of the other thing I was trying to, to do when I was contextualizing the book, um, the music. And, and one of the things that you talk at the beginning, but also throughout is this, um, is thinking about location, right? Punk coming from sort of the suburbs and what that means and, and whiteness. And so can you talk a little bit about that, that sort of thinking about whiteness in, in the ways um, in, in the suburbs in the ways in the fifties and the sixties and what you saw happening historically? Yeah. So um, there were so many things that, that, like I said, sort of changed my mind, changed my thinking about um, punk and the story I wanted to tell. One of those things was that the, the people who developed the punk style were almost all baby boomers that had had this experience of um, growing up in the the sort of like new suburban developments that that are so famous um, in the post-war era, which were, um, of course, like, you know, now there's more scholarship being written on it, but it's something that we've known, we've always known for a long time, which is how severe the, 
housing discrimination was in the development of those suburbs. So um, a lot of what I wanted to do was put these things together, I guess. It's not, they're not really new ideas. It's just a matter of sort of connecting the dots. Like it's not a secret when these people were born. It's not a secret that, you know, Iggy Pop um, had a draft number. Um, It's not a secret that, you know, the members of Devo were at Kent State during the Kent State massacre. It's not the, the whole suburban story is such a big part of punk. You know, there's a lot of talking about the suburbs, singing about the suburbs, complaining about the suburbs. But I found there was very little connecting the dots, you know, of like, well, how did people get to the suburbs? And then like, you know, what were they if they were growing up in the late fifties and early sixties, like how did that music? Um, and then let's say in the late seventies, they're playing that kind of music. How does, how do those two things connect? So um, I'm very interested in this idea of whiteness as it relates to punk, I guess in the most empirical kinds of ways. So I was really looking at, not just do people think of themselves as white, you know, this these identity types of questions, but really like what were the lived experience of these musicians? Um, did they did they grow up in a segregated, you know, did they attend a, a school that was 98% white? You know, did they um did they grow up in in a suburb where where their parents part of this movement, you know, what were, how did their whiteness, if they, if they were white, how did that um, shape who they are? How did that affect their experiences in school? Um, You know, in their interactions with the police, in um, their wealth, you know, and the, the amount they had to sort of work and what kind of le- you know leisure time they had etc cetera, etc cetera. so that's that's sort of um i don't know it's a maybe a long-winded answer to that question but sort of looking at whiteness as a um something that is directly impacting lives in a very you know um measurable way often no, and I think that that is really helpful for thinking about how you sort of structured the book and, and looking at the text as a whole, right? So you've put this into um, sort of two major parts, right? You have part one where you use punk as an adjective um, to sort of situate, and then part two where you um, talk about sort of punk as a noun, as the place to situate. And so in that first part, you sort of go into, you start with the blues. And, and so I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that. Um, sort of the punk is an adjective, and then let's move into thinking about the role of the blues in in punk, right? In creating punk or thinking about punk. Sure. So the first part, punk as an adjective, um, what I meant there is that it was really a um, an approach to playing rock early on, and the people that we um, that we associate with punk, or the people that have been sort of placed in the punk genealogy, um, as sort of so-called proto-punks and 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 musicians like that, that they are, um, you know, they were playing rock music basically, that they weren't playing something that was a different kind of style. And looking at that, I mean, that's also in the sort of the usage of the word, you know, it's not like punk is this style, this clearly defined thing that we play. It's more like we're playing punk rock, a certain kind of rock. And that also allowed me to back the timeline way up, which is what I, what I really wanted to do, which was to start like in the late sixties, which is where, I really think you know you need to start with this um, with this genealogy. I mean, you could go back even further, but this is really where um, <clears throat> I thought it made sense for my story. And the 
the people that I start with are really these mostly Midwestern musicians like the MC5, Stooges, and um, you know lots of other folks. But you know those are some some of the major players that were really coming out of a a rock world that was focused on certain kinds of blues resources. So another thing that's important in the book is thinking about the blues as a really vast musical world, not just, you know, 12 bar blues or um, that very specific kind of form, but a, a very wide range of, <clears throat> of resources that musicians have put to use in different ways. And so what I look at are how these musicians who sort of so many what what I did was I looked at, you know, who did people that are sort of unequivocally, you know, punk or as close to that as you can get, who did they sort of look to and say, oh, this is where our stuff is coming from. You know, the Stooges are always invoked. So to me, the Stooges are like a very extreme version of a lot of the blues-based rock of the 60s, and especially this kind of rock that was focused on riff-based blues, um, blues that doesn't really go from chord to chord, blues that's very um, based on short cycles, like riffs that just repeat, 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 repeat. The Stooges were doing that um, to the nth degree. And you know, a lot of other groups were as well. But I sort of look at the blues as like a, you know, to me, all rock music is a form of the blues. And so looking at the ways musicians approach blues resources is a very good way to sort of situate any kind of any kind of rock music. You know, where do they fall in this continuum from like um you know, this very riff-based blues, which you can hear in the music of, you know, Howlin' Wolf and John Lee Hooker and um, Robert Pete Williams and all of these musicians that were constantly being invoked by these um, by these white guys in the late 60s. And then on the other hand, you have blues resources that are very, um, say, like a lot of major closed form, eight bar blueses, things like that, um, that we'll get into later in our discussion. But um, so that's what I was looking. And I, I look at, you know, other groups that were working with these kinds of blues resources um, in New York, Patti Smith, Velvet Underground, Suicide, um, in Boston, Early Modern Lovers, um, on the West Coast. Soon you have, um, you know, Flaming Groovies. There, there are like, um, you know, Captain Beefheart was doing a lot of this stuff. So there's, it's um, it's a, it's a sort of wide, wide angle lens. But uh, in the first chapter, I'm kind of looking at that extreme kind of version. And you know, it's it's again, it's not something that's really a secret. I just tried to put the dots together in interesting ways. You know, Iggy Pop is always talking about his interest in the blues and James Brown in um, Book of White, like all these different musicians. Um, some of it's a little bit more secretive, like with the Velvet Underground or with certain musicians like that, who kind of those connections got, got lost. But I was looking at, um, I guess the second piece of that is how did those, why were they doing it? Why, what did that do for their music? Why were they interested in that approach to the blues? Um, and to me, that's sort of the one of the really, really key stories of punk is this, this use of these very, very intense blues resources, which were marked in the 60s very, very strongly, very heavily as black, as male, um, this kind of, uh, in some ways, you know, very heavily stereotyped type of um, masculinity, black masculinity that was also exploited by a lot of the blues musicians themselves, people like Helen Wolf. And then, um, then there's this process though that happens in punk of a sort of step-by-step -step removal of those connections. And yet the resources are still there at the core. 
So that to me is what gives punk a lot of its tension and a lot of its power is this paradox between all of the music, all of the black musical resources in particular that these musicians are drawing on. And then this narrative and this sort of obscuring of that history um, and changing and, and doing that musically, like changing some of the elements like the vocal style or, or things like that, that, that then kind of um, cloud the relationship. You know, we're not the Rolling Stones. We're not, um, you know, we're not just a bunch of white guys playing the blues, like that kind of thing. And then um, there's this sort of ending tension, this ending result that, that I think has kind of fueled punk from its very beginning. And so you sort of start with that blues and also then thinking about um, the, the avant-garde and the role of the avant-garde in American punk and um, you mentioned Captain Beefheart and, and others. So can you talk about then how you sort of saw, so that next chapter sort of moves into that, but how you saw that that avant-garde playing an important role in this, um, in, in uh, this early punk? Yeah. Um, so that was probably the hardest chapter for me to write in many ways. That's, so looking at these musicians like Captain Beefheart, um, The Residents, Devo, Destroy All Monsters, a lot of these um, groups are invoked, especially the Captain Beefheart. You know, he's someone that's mentioned a lot as a um, a precedent for punk or someone whose music played a big role, but that very little. Um, explanation of what that means or any sort of tangible reality there. And I think, so that chapter does a couple things. First of all, what I was really trying to do is also look at this avant-garde and experimental music, experimental rock um, in particular, again, as thinking about this question always of like, well, why are the musicians doing this? What is the point? Why, you know, musicians don't just like do things automatically. No one's like forcing them to do that unless they're like in, you know, school band, you know, someone is saying like, play this music. Um, So they're making these choices for a reason deliberately. And to me, it was that all these musicians, people like Beefheart were, were, what they were doing was sort of taking an experimental look at American music history. And they were, um, you know, using techniques like collage and parody and anonymity and um, masking techniques and all these kinds of things to offer a critique, offer an engagement with American music history in particular. And also, even further, racial formations in American music, really looking at, for example, this narrative that rock and roll equals the blues plus country or something like that. So really looking at, um, and these musicians were also working at a time where there was so much in the air about looking back at these, um, at these they're not really that much older, but looking at these commercial recordings of, say, the 20s, um, the 30s, <clears throat> the anthology of American folk music, all of this sort of looking back and a lot of fetishization of these older materials. Um, so, again, my sort of goal is to look at these musicians as being of their time. And to me, someone like Beefheart is like, okay, you know, I see all these guys that are out there that are trying to be, um, you know, sort of in this musical past. And I'm interested in the musical past, but I'm also interested in how the musical past relates to our present and what I can do to to offer a commentary there. Um, I... Then I followed that as a sort of American story. So when you look at a group like Perubu, um, and they're looking to Captain Beefheart, that 
there's a, again, a continuity that says, okay, these are all groups that are interested in the American musical past and how that's informed us and our tastes and who we are and our identities and those kinds of questions. So again, it, that's a really tricky tricky one also because a lot of those bands, like say a group like Devo, Devo forms in 1971, 1972. They're right in the wake of um, Kent State. You know, they're studying with um, Alan Caprow and like these, uh, you know, they're learning about um, experimental art and they're forming in this particular world, this particular context. But then, you know, we only know them as this sort of 80s band or that's kind of how we, how they live in our imagination. So it's a hard story to tell to say like, okay, you know, this group that you know from Whippet. I'm really going to situate them 10 years earlier. And then if we're going to go 10 years earlier when they form, we also have to look at then their experiences that led them to that or even earlier, et cetera. So um, a lot of those groups that I connected to the late 60s or the early 70s really became known or sort of joined the punk scene in a way kind of late or were um, kind of on the fringes for a long time. So that was kind of a difficult timeline story. And then also because <clears throat> there's so much that emerged in, say, the past um, 20, 30 years connecting punk to European avant-garde movements and uh, groups like the Situationist <clears throat> Internationale that that also, I think, kind of obscured that American that American connection. Not to say that the situationists don't have American links and things like that. Um, no. I think, did you ask me another question? <laughs> oh, no, no, you keep going. You're good. <laughs> um, so, yeah, just, so, yeah, that that's all. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I was just, no, I was just, I was just sort of confer, like agreeing with, because I found this chat, because of the work I do, I found this chapter really interesting because I'm interested in sort of zines and the ephemera that comes from punk. Um, But thinking about and situating it in relation to avant-garde, right, as music as opposed to text um, and and art creation or writing uh, was really interesting. So yes, I understand. And I found that really interesting. Oh, thanks. Uh, And you move from that into this, uh, thinking about like it being pure rock and roll, right? And the Ramones. And so in chapter four, you really uh, sort of ground us again back in this sort of like, and you, the title is pure rock and roll with no blues or folk or any of that stuff in it. Um, the quote from Johnny Ramone. And so can you talk a little bit about that chapter and what you're trying to do there as well? Yeah. So, um, and this is also like to get into the weeds a little bit with these musical style questions. And I think that's something that my book, I hope, you know, offers that's, that's different or, um, somewhat original is looking really at these musical features. One of the things that's been a little bit hard to communicate is that, and I think because I wrote this article on punk and the blues and I start with the blues Um, And it's because the book is about race. And for a lot of people, that means, you know, blackness. They're not thinking about race and racial formations in, uh, you know, in broad terms and thinking about whiteness and these other, these other, you know, questions of binaries. And um, so, um, so there's a lot in punk that, that isn't, blues per se, um, or that's a very different kind of blues than what I was talking about in in the second chapter when we started our discussion. And to me, that's where you get groups like the Ramones. And um, there is a lot of conventional wisdom that what punk did was take the blues out of rock and roll or to you know avoid the blues. But again, people aren't really being specific about what that means. I will say that for a group like the Ramones, 
they, so that quote from Johnny Ramone where he was saying, you know, we play pure rock and roll with no blues, no funk, no, no folk or any of that stuff in it. He's saying, you know, he's very explicitly saying, I'm trying to differentiate our music from the blues. And what he means at that time is not necessarily um, John Lee Hooker, but more like, you know, the yard birds or, or something like that. The animals, like we're not, we're not a bunch of white guys playing the blues. That's something that runs through the whole book is this anxiety of, um, you know, we don't want to be just another white rock band that's just playing, you know, boring, <clears throat> boring co- blues covers worse than the originals. Um, and, I, you know, just that comes from also a heightened stakes of playing the blues, heightened you know, pressure to say, you know, a lot of um, black musicians, black writers are saying, you know, you can't stop appropriating, you know, the blues, stop appropriating black music for profit. So there is that anxiety, but they, people took different approaches to it. And what's interesting to me is like, now people look back and say, yeah, Stooges, Ramon, Beefheart, like that's, that's punk's genealogy. But at the time, like say the early mid seventies, you know, a group like um, the Stooges and a group like the Ramones were really, even though it, this has nothing to do with necessarily did they like each other, did they admire each other's music, but just saying stylistically, they were really going f- for two opposite kinds of um, effects. And then it was later um, punk musicians that were sort of putting these two um, two streams together. So when I talk about that, sort of Northeast scene, New York in the mid seventies, Boston in the mid seventies, a lot of what these bands were doing, were looking back to um, the music of the early sixties. It's a very nostalgic kind of music, um, musically speaking. And again, this isn't like an invented connection. This is the, the actual childhood music or the teenager music of people like Deborah Harry um, um, you know, the Ramones, that's their musical memory. And that's why I pitch it also as a sort of nostalgia. It's like a literal looking back at, you know, the music, the, what was on the radio when we were kids, and also a looking back to that suburban world with some um, sense of loss, some sense of uh, envy, some sense of, you know, wanting to recover that. So even though there's a, there's a bit of a, you know, again, that sort of punk attitude, if you look at a group like the Ramones, they're playing this music with very little irony, you know, Blondie, it's, it's, it's not ironic. Um, Jonathan Richmond, it's very much um, an embrace and an homage to that, <clears throat> to that world of, you know, um, the Ronettes, Jackie DeShannon, Shangri-Las, you know, they, they are situating themselves in that kind of lineage. Whereas, um, you know, that's very different from the Stooges sort of trying to put themselves in a kind of, um, you know, um, Booker White kind of, kind of lineage. So what I try to do is look at that stylistically and, and say, okay, you know, these forms are, closed forms they're aab forms they're um they're using um chord <clears throat> chord progressions like the passamezzo moderno which had by that time become very much like a country kind of progression you know that's the that's the progression that the Roll- rolling stones used for honky tonk women so i was looking at you know, what's the different effect of playing that kind of music? You know, when Blondie does a cover of Denise, um, what's the, why are they doing that? Why are they looking to those resources when, um, you know, a group, you know, Captain Beefheart on the other hand is doing, you know, Robert Pete Williams is, you know, grown so ugly or very different kinds of um, covers and resources that they're drawing on. 
I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. And so after you've sort of grounded us in that progression to this point, you move into, because you you sort of talked about that mid-70s, right? You move into that part two where you're looking at um, punk as more of a noun, right? Mm -hmm. It's recognized Mm -hmm. as a term that is used to define this musical genre. And you start with the the Atlantic coast um, and what's happening. So can you sort of talk about that transition into then this sort of first, I don't even want to say wave, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. but but for lack of a better term for sure. now, of thinking about um, punk and grounding us in, in right. what has, yeah, we sort of think about punk now. Right. So... The first part of the book, and even though it's in those three chapters and there's a chronological element to it, you know, it's important for me to, and what I tried to emphasize is that, you know, it's really the same generation of people. Um, you know, Iggy Pop, Patti Smith, Johnny Ramone, they're all the same, you know, late 40s, born in the late 40s, maybe 50, 51 for some of them, that baby boomer generation. And... Um, it's just that a lot of the, say, CBGB music and stuff like that, they're making that generation when, when they're much older. So, you know, people like um, Deborah Harry is, you know, 30, 31 when, when they form Blondie. She had, you know, performed as a folk musician in a, <clears throat> in a, in a late 60s band. So she's been performing, she's been around doing these things, but, um, so looking at it as this sort of one generation and their um, their approach to these different musical resources at, at, I guess, different points in their lives. When you get to part two, you really start, um, I start looking at a later generation. Like now we're moving into this generation of people that are at the very, very beginnings of Generation X or that sort of generation between the baby boomers and generation X. And that starts with um, England and the United Kingdom, I guess, more generally. So it's not that the United Kingdom is not a, doesn't play a role in this story. It plays a very, very strong role. It's just, I'm looking at how America looked to England and the UK as a, I guess, as an origin point, like how this narrative, American musicians, white American musicians get very invested in this, um, this relationship to the United Kingdom, that that is the sort of origin of the music. And it goes back to um, the British invasion. So it's not that American musicians are ignorant of Black American music, or that they've lost, they've completely forgotten people like uh, Muddy Waters. That's not the case. But then they become very invested in this story that they've forgotten it, and that it takes, you know, Van Morrison or the Rolling Stones to reintroduce that to um, to the United States. And this sort of British invasion relationship that repeats with punk. But these these um, these British musicians are also 
they also have a freedom, I guess, in a way towards these musical resources, and they start putting things together in new and interesting ways. And they are also sort of changing the music. So there's some truth to the fact that, you know, punk starts in, you say, England in 76, 77. Like that's not a completely insane idea, but it needs to be contextualized. And for me, what that means is that groups like The Damned, groups like The Clash, they're working with these resources and putting them in putting them together in new ways. So for example, looking at the Stooges and the Ramones and saying, oh, you know, we can combine this and and do interesting things with those two groups that, as I had said, were kind of um, on opposite ends of the spectrum, musically speaking, in the United States. So I'm I'm looking at that back and forth, especially among white musicians in the UK and white musicians in the US and that you know why why are they so invested in that narrative of you know the music needs to come from from um United Kingdom and then be reintroduced and we need those people to show us our own music like where where does that narrative come from and why are why are white Americans so invested in that story? Um, so it's 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 kind of like two a two pronged chapter looking at this story, this language of the British invasion and all that, and then also musically speaking, you know, how did a group like the Damned or the Clash put these um, put these elements together? And I will say that a lot of those musicians, most of the musicians that are that are forging this in the in the UK are also um, baby boomers. So it's also in the UK where you start to get this generational shift. You know, you got guys like Joe Strummer that are baby boomers that played in R&B bands that are musically transitioning into a new style. And then you have much younger people like, you know, Johnny Rotten, and you start to get the emergence of punk as a music by and for young people. One of the things that's really not, um, that's become confused, same thing with the, you know, the story of the beginning is 76 London, is that, you know, the CBGB scene, say like in the mid 70s, or 1974, 73, it's not really music by, or even for young people. It's a quite an old group of people, <laughs> musically speaking. Um, and it's really not until you get groups like <clears throat> the Sex Pistols and in in England that you start to get, okay, this is a music by and for teenagers, for example. There's very little of that before that. and But just to sort of, again, couch that, it's not every group in England, not by a long shot. A lot of the, in fact, probably most of the musicians, even in that early London scene, are already in their mid-20s by the time they're making records, or even late 20s by the time they're making records and um, and playing shows. Right, and I thought that was, uh, so that was something I wanted to talk to you about. So I'm glad you brought it up because I thought that was a really interesting thing that you addressed, right, throughout the book. Is it, And you even have in the back um, a chart that sort of shows that the importance of really thinking about the age of the artists when they started, when they were performing, and you sort of make an argument, and this sort of moves us into the next chapter, that it isn't until we really start to think about um, California and what was happening in uh, California, specifically Hollywood and that area, um, that we start to see young people really playing the music, mm-hmm, right? There's mm-hmm. a sort of shift. Because the other thing you mentioned is um, that we it takes a long time. It, it, at first, it takes a long time to go from playing the songs, right, or the band performing to getting that music out and for people to hear that music. So can you talk about that, what was going on in California then um, that really sort of changed some of this and, and moved us into this this the, this California punk scene? Yeah, of course. So 
really simultaneous with what's going on in um, the UK, you have a very similar thing going on in in California, in LA and San Francisco, where <clears throat> you start to get this generational shift. You start to get teenagers making music um, and putting out the music very quickly, right? So um, you get, rather than like, like I mentioned, someone like Debbie Harry, who's the music she's making as a young person is very different than the music she's making in 76, 77, um, as a, you know, as a, someone in her early thirties, um, you start to get teenagers making music, you know, in, in mom and dad's basement, that kind of thing. That's, it's something that we have earlier in the book, but I would say in the blues chapter, more like, okay, what's the music that Iggy Pop is making when he's, um, when he's a teenager is this garage rock, early punk kind of music. Um, so let's see, I'm losing the train of thought a little bit, sorry. But oh yeah, so in California, you start to get, there are these older musicians, you know, uh, people like you know John Doe and Billy Zoom um, of of X, um, Exine Cervenka of X. They're um, more of this earlier kind of punk as an adjective. We're playing you know fun rock and roll, um, angry Samoans. You know these bands. They're like they're like older older people that are playing you know aggressive rock, fun rock. Um, you know, middle finger up at you rock, but it's still basically like, um, it's not really, it's not like hardcore punk. It's not really like its own um, thing in the same way as you get uh, later with groups, say for, for example, like a group like Bad Brains. So, but this is where it starts to emerge and you, you start to get a really interesting, um, sh- you know, uh, mix of people. So you have people like, you know, um, the guys from, from Red Cross, you know, Stephen McDonald, that, you know, 15, they're really, really young. Um, and you have people like, you know, Billy Zoom, who's in his early thirties and they're like playing the same kinds of venues, same kinds of shows. Um, you know, the groups, uh, the descendants, the adolescents, and, and a lot of times they're, they're playing for each other. They know each other. They might be in the same bands together, like in, in descendants where you have Tony Lombardo, he's much older. And then you have the rest of the guys who are like in high school. And, um, and to me, that's really key to understanding also the shift in the music. Like it's very different to be a group like the Ramones who are singing about being teenagers and thinking about being teenagers, but they're in their late twenties. Um, when they're singing, you know, teenage lobotomy or whatever, versus an actual fifteen-year-old or a sixteen-year-old who's um, who's living at home and you know playing in the in the basement or something like that, and then making a making a seven-inch and, and releasing it. So it's a it's different kind of music. It's a different kind of energy. It's a different kind of um, point of view, and also there's a different reference point. You know, those younger people are listening to. The Sex Pistols. They are listening to, um, you know, The Damned, and their their point of references are not just, you know, for for a group like um, for a group like, um, say, Patti Smith Band. You know, their reference points are, you know, Van Morrison, you know, The Beatles, Rolling Stones, those British Invasion bands. You know, they're looking to um, everyone loves Mitch Ryder. People are like Mitch Ryder crazy. You know, they're like looking to those. That's their that's their musical point of reference. Shangri La's, but a, a group like um, Descendants or something like that. Their reference point is sure some of those groups, but more it's you know the British punk bands and things like that. So you get this really interesting mix of of musical styles and and tensions over you know what is punk and what's the point of this and what are we doing. And um, to me, I think like any kind of paradox, any kind of tension, it fuels punk as a style. Like it doesn't, 
it's not to be resolved. It's to be leaned into and to be like the more paradox, the more tension, the more contradiction, the better. Right. And one of the things I thought was interesting too, is really you thinking about the role of segregation in LA, the LA suburbs, and also the makeup of the, the more diverse maybe, or, or the different crowd that you would see in LA uh, than you were seeing in other places at the time. Yeah. So again, just following the thread, like always looking at the connection of the music people are making with their, with their lived experiences. And so, you know, by the late seventies, the suburbs are becoming a lot more, um, you know, ethnically and racially diverse people are moving in. They're not being denied um, mortgages and stuff in the same ways that they were in say the fifties. You know, when Johnny Ramone is growing up in, in, in Long Island, places like Westbury, you know, it's extremely segregated. You know, there's, you know, in some of these districts, you know, there's, you know, five black people out of, you know, thousands. They're like, it's extremely, extremely segregated. That's not the case. In um, in as we get later and later into the seventies, you start to get and you start to get also looking at why that is. You know, courts are saying no, you've got to address this. You know, civil rights. Um, um, you, you know, the ACLU is winning lawsuits, and courts are ordering you know busing. And there's like a lot of um, a lot of changes that are being. Um, uh, that are just sort of happening because of you know the wider world that these um, that these musicians are living in, and I think that's also you know part of the challenge is if you're a teenager, you're experiencing these things. You're not necessarily analyzing it from this big picture and historical perspective, and even though the dots are there to connect, people don't necessarily they're not able to connect them all the time or they're not interested in connecting them or they have some resistance to connecting them. So LA is still very, very segregated at that time, but it's more like um, they're, I guess the, the students in these high schools um, or the, the, the kids in these high schools, the people um, experiencing these shifts are sort of like, there's like um battle going on about it. You know, there's um people are fighting the busing, people are 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 pulling their kids out of public school and sending them to private school. There's a lot of, you know, there's Proposition 13. And these are the things that these um you know, these kids are experiencing. They're experiencing Reagan, they're experiencing all this stuff, but their, you know, their experience of it is is um they don't have much control over it, you know. They they have control over the music they're making and, um, you know, being in these bands and stuff like that. But it's sort of like they end up being at the center of a lot of these changes and controversies um, in 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 new ways. I guess I'll put it that way. So when when you have, say, like hardcore clubs or or venues that are emerging in the suburbs and these suburbs in specific suburbs, you know, are being places like um, Redondo beach or whatever they're being that, that suburb had been kind of enforced as a segregated white, um, you know, particular kind of place. And the, the homeowners and the, the older generation are sort of working to, to maintain that as much as they can. There's a lot of racism. And then you have these, you know, these kids that are creating a very different kind of world. You know, they're out on the street, they're they're playing this this crazy music. That, you know, and it's there are these tensions that are emerging. But I was looking at, I really wanted to look at what was the reality, what was the empirical reality of this, of this. Um, this phenomenon rather than just sort of like, oh, you know, we were out there and cops were bothering us and it didn't make any sense. I don't know why. 
And, and so when we move from, of course, California, we have to go into D.C., right, and hardcore. And so can you talk a bit about that, right, that seventh chapter before you really get to your sort of outro, um, the role of D.C. and mm-hmm. hardcore, mm-hmm. Um, you know, Minor Threat, Bad Brains, those bands that we all know right, about right. that area. So, um, so part of the part of the California chapter is also looking at the persistent whiteness of punk and the sort of growing discomfort that people have with that. You know, there's a sort of idea that punk should be a certain kind of thing. It's becoming more and more like that. It's becoming more and more that um, it's leftist, it's um, socially conscious, it's, um, you know, we're rebelling against, you know, mainstream, lame, you know, white suburban society, that's not really in there early on in the same way. You know, it's, it's just not. And um, so you get, you get that tension, but I think because of where punk comes from and how the stylistic choices that these musicians are making and the communities that they find themselves in, there's like a growing disconnect between what people want punk to be and what it is. And at the center of that is also this sort of racial um, homogeneity. Now in, in LA, there's this important element of the Latinx population and the East LA punk bands. And um, there's a lot of involvement by you know, at the time, people who would identify as, you know, or, or use the term Chicano um, or Spanish or Hispanic musicians. And that's that's a really important thread that runs through. But there's still this persistent, like, lack of African-American participation. It's very, very minimal. And this, and also with the, with the, Latinx musicians, a lot of them are not having the, they're not, they're, they're not having a, well, how can I put this? Their, their situation is, um, they're not necessarily from East LA. You know, they're, they're growing up in the suburbs, having the same kind of, um, life as, as other, um, you know, as, as say like their white, their white friends. Um, you know, this is like the case with, uh, say, a musician like, um, like Des from Black Flag. Like he's, he's, he talks about growing up in Newark, and he's like, yeah, but you know, I wasn't really, I wasn't really related to that part of of you know all the all the tension that was going on in Newark and like the racial tension. Like I wasn't a part of that. I didn't I didn't know about it. You know, his experience, and then when they moved to L.A., his experience isn't particularly um, a racialized one, and that kind of. Uh, racialization of him kind of comes later as people want to see these bands as being very um, multiracial or multi-ethnic, but it's, it's a lot more complicated at the time. And a lot of what makes it complicated and a lot of what makes it malleable for people is that again, there aren't black people involved in any significant numbers. And when they are involved, it's extremely racialized, extremely tense. Like, you know, in zines you get, you know, people singled out and, and, you know, the N word used in a sort of like fun way, mocking way. And like, it's very, very uncomfortable from, from today's standpoint, in my opinion. Um, That's not the case in DC when you have bad brains at the center of the scene, like all of a sudden everything really changes because you have an all black band at the center of a punk scene. They're not on the fringes. It's not one guy. It's not, you know, one guy who's heavily, you know, sort of like racialized and and kind of um, teased in in zines and things like that. It's they're really at the at the core of that DC scene, and that's a total paradigm shift. That's a total game changer. It's also a total game changer for who gets involved with punk, who feels like punk is for them, and as a, a mode of expression that's available to them. And um, I think it also has to do with that particular context of, of DC, where you have um, a majority 
um, you know, majority black city, you have um, very, very um, desegregated or integrated suburbs, you know, places like Prince George's County, Howard County, where I grew up. It's, it's a very different kind of world. It's a world where a group like Bad Brains makes a lot of sense. And so, but I think the fact that they are there, that they are this, and, and that's a big part of their, their story, their identity, you know, their, their, um, the, the, the things they say about themselves in their writings and in their music is that they're this all black band in a, in an all white scene. And so all of a sudden punk has to kind of reckon with this situation and this, um, this kind of racial reality that this uncomfortable racial reality in a way that they, that, that, that people involved in the scene never really had to do up until this point. Right. And you sort of see this happening and you see this going on and you sort of end with this idea that we have all this, right? We've extended and, and come into the 80s. Um, but you want to look at some of the ways in which um, there's more contemporary settings for or, or contemporary examples of what you have seen going mm-hmm. on throughout the book. So can you talk a little bit about some of those more contemporary examples that you see? Yeah. So, I mean, because the book is so... Uh, it's really based in a very, at this point, you know, we're talking like half a century ago. <laughs> um, even though the music sounds very contemporary, um, it's not. And, but one of the conceits of the book is that we're still wrestling with these racial formations, with these paradoxes, with these tensions, with these formations of blackness and whiteness that were sort of forged in the 60s and 70s. And I believe that. And I think that's why I hope, you know, the book is relevant for today. And you look at um, a style like punk and what I was really trying to show is what what is the legacy of all of this stuff that I just, you know, outlined for everyone? You know, the book ends really in, in 1981, you know, minor threat. Um, and you know, we're a long way from that. So I looked at, you know, the blues, you know, how these blues resources or what I called the raw power style, you know, how that persisted in, you know, in, in groups like, you know, Harry Pussy and Bikini Kill and um, this, you know, a lot of the sort of um, black punk bands and why that style sort of continued to, to be used. I looked at, um, say the the questions of narrative you know how a group like death um figures into this history you know uh um an all black punk band or a rock band that's been sort of rediscovered or that was rediscovered um maybe 15 years ago and um is sort of put in this place of being a proto-punk band or a predecessor of the punk style or even like an inventor of the punk style when, you know, in fact, they never played out. They never, you know, their record was was never really released except for a, a seven inch that they put out privately that was never really even heard by, by anyone until uh, it surfaced much later on a very obscure compilation. So why a group like that has been put into that kind of role historically. And um, yeah, I looked at, you know, the growth of books like mine and college courses and this sort of, again, that historical nostalgic impulse in punk, you know, it's, it's interesting. Like there's so much, there's so much myth making about punk and it's so different from the reality. So like, there's this question of ephemera, you know, you mentioned ephemera like flyers and, um, you know, these, these things that are supposed to exist for, um, you know, a short amount of time, but there's so much saving of these, of these items and then archiving them. And now like there are these archival collections all over the country at, at 
very prestigious uh, college libraries. So there's always been that historicizing impulse. There's always been you know the lot of taping of um, of shows. There's you know, this sort of like awareness that what's going on is is important or potentially important. So I look at yeah this the these sort of tensions and how like that's a I, I think an interesting contemporary phenomenon um, that there's like now we know that punk is like a thoroughly historical <laughs> historically oriented music and I think that's sort of borne out by say like all of this archiving all of this collecting all of these coffee table books um, books like mine things like that so um, I'm trying to think if I left out anything else in the in the last chapter but I'm just sort of looking at trying to make a connection to today and I think I hope that when people read the book their their ears will be kind of retuned and they'll start to hear these things <clears throat> when they listen to music when they're assessing music analyzing it and also when they see certain um, certain phenomenon when they when they experience them like looking at oh I see um, you know this story about uh, racial, segregation and, and housing discrimination and like, oh, I, I'm, I'm making these connections to say these, these early rock bands or these early punk bands. That's what I hope. So we've been talking a while, so I'll ask you my one last final question. Okay. Um, if there's anything that you're working on now or anything else that is going on with this book that you sort of want to one last final, anything you want to promote? Um. No, I'm just sort of working on promoting this. <laughs> so I really greatly appreciate you, um, you know, taking the time. I'm very interested in, I guess, I want to see how this book, I'm really interested in how this book is um, is read by people outside of academia. So that's, that's kind of what I'm interested in. And um, I also think it's a, um, uh, an interesting thing about, about this, about this show and, and, and the, the new books network and just sort of like looking at how, you know, getting this sort of, I, I wanted to make it something that people outside of um, academia would be interested in and would read. And and there's been, there's been um, a, a lot of positive uh, feedback right now. And that, that's what I'm, that's what I'm hoping for. It's really interesting because when I started doing the, um, presenting the research that I was doing, say on like Punk and the Blues, say maybe 10 years ago, the response I got was very, very different, both inside and outside of academia. So I got a lot of kind of knee-jerk reactions, negative reactions. Well, what do you mean? What are you talking about? Like, um, And now I think, you know, the world is different. People are just more attuned to these kinds of things. They're more um, self-reflective about these kinds of things, you know, white people, basically I'm talking about. Um, and the response has been, been good. So that's kind of interesting. I, I want to see, see what happens there. Hopefully uh, I'll continue to get people talking. Well, it's been really great talking with you again. This is Evan Rapport, who is the author of Damage, Musicality, and Race in Early American Punk. Evan, thanks for talking with me on New Books Network. Thank you so much. It was it was really a pleasure. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.